Well, I wish, I wish y'all could sit up here and hear you singing. Um, find so often you help me to believe the words by hearing them on your lips. John chapter 21, if you have your Bibles. If you are new to Christianity or maybe just exploring it, um, we've printed the text for you on page um, 9 of your worship guide. Uh, John chapter 21, I'm going to read verses 1 through 19. This is God's word. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garments, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but... When you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Be seated. Would you pray with me again and ask God's blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. Lord, you have been raised from the dead. All that is yours, Lord Jesus, is ours forevermore. And so from the bounty that you earned in your life of obedience, would you deliver to us grace in a 
abundance from your word. Change us by it. Don't let any of us leave here the same. Confront us where we need to be confronted. Heal us where we need to be healed. Comfort us where we need to be comforted. But work, we beg you by your Holy Spirit, work in us. We pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen. Well, as you can see, if you're visiting with us today, this is the season of Advent, the four year, weeks, four weeks, sometimes it could feel like four years, the four weeks uh, before Christmas, because Advent just simply means, it's the old Latin word for coming. When we celebrate the first coming of Jesus and anticipate his second coming, his first coming is God came into the world in the person of Jesus. He took on flesh to put the world right again. And that's how John starts his gospel. We're finishing John's gospel today, but it's appropriate for us to remember how the story started in John chapter 1, where he announces the birth of Jesus in this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the story of Christmas. God coming into the world to set the world right again. That is a story that can change our lives if it breaks into our hearts. It can transform us from the inside out. Christmas is such a joyful time of the year, so full of excitement and anticipation. But it can also just break into our lives. That story can just break into our lives just enough this time of the year to give us a false sense of security and hope. That kind of excitement and anticipation that we feel this time of year we experience can just serve to delay the darkness just a little bit longer. It doesn't redeem it just delays christmas can be doesn't have to be if it roots itself if the story of the gospel roots itself in our lives it will transform us but but this time of the year the excitement and anticipation can just be like a thin veneer over a rotting surface of our lives it just covers up the decay for just a little while the the truth is that Come December 26th and in the month of January, depression and suicide rates are the highest that they are all year long. can push back the hope and anticipation with just surface level over our lives. can push it back just long enough that the darkness, when taken away, comes crashing right back in. One author put it this way. This is how she described the experience of the post-Christmas. The holidays are cheerful, and she puts that in quotes. The presents, the parties, the cocktails, they all distract us from everyday issues. But once the temporary material high of Christmas subsides, we are all left with the same problems, fears, anxieties that we had before. Christmas is like putting a band-aid over a gaping wound. It covers up the ugliness and makes it look pretty, but band-aids don't last forever. We shouldn't be surprised when the rubber band that we've stretched out snaps back in January and it hurts. We need a better story. 
than just the thin veneer that Christmas often gives us. And maybe put it better, we need the better story of Christmas to take better root in our hearts. And that's the challenge, isn't it? We are like squishy toys, I said last week. Squeeze them, and when you let go, they just revert back. And we just so easily revert back to hopelessness and helplessness and despair the moment the Sunday morning squeeze is let go. We come on Sunday and we hear a mediocre message about the amazing grace of Jesus. We worship with our brothers and sisters. We hear, we believe again. And then Sunday morning's squeeze is let go and we revert back. You know, the story of John's gospel started with this Christmas hope that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and, and comes to its climax with the one who was God bearing our sins on the cross, and that's not the end of the story. He was raised in victory after conquering sin, Satan, and death. That's a great story. To literally transform our lives from the inside out. It's done so for thousands of years with billions of people. But why do we find it so hard to live by that story of redemption? Why do we just revert back to our lesser stories of brokenness and despair? Stories that have no redemption to them whatsoever or even worse have stories of redemption that say if you work hard enough you can redeem yourself what a despairing story that is but why is it that we fall back to that story so often chapter 21 of John's gospel is a little bit of a weird addition to his story some have called it an epilogue the end of chapter 20 reads this way. This is the verses just prior to the passage that I read. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. That seems like the perfect end to the story of John's gospel. That's John's mic drop. John Dunn. I'm out. And then you realize that Jesus is, is the Christ. You've given yourself to him. He says, look, here's the thing. You have life in his name. I've told you the entire story. And if you give yourself to the Jesus I've just told you about, you will have life in his name. I'm out. Jesus has been raised from the dead, victorious, reigning over heaven. He's, he sent Jesus has sent his disciples out into the world with his authority. He gave them his spirit in John chapter 20. Breathed it out on them and said, now you're going to go on this amazing mission that has the keys to unlock heaven for anyone who would believe. That mission is remarkable and full of power. So I'm giving you my spirit that was with me in all of my power. He's, he's to you. 
And then John chapter 21 begins with Peter saying, I think I'm going to go fishing. And Thomas and Nathaniel and James and John and a couple others aren't named, says, yeah, we're in too. They just revert back to their normal life. These men were fishermen by trade. They just go on living like this epic changing event of the death and resurrection of Jesus has not happened. I'm, I'm just going back to the factory. I'm just going to go back to the office. I'm just going to go back to living normal life. That was a great time with Jesus. That was a tremendous thing that he did. What a great worship service. I really felt touched by the message. What an amazing conference. I, I went on that retreat and it was such a mountaintop high experience. Why can't I just capture that year round every day, Monday morning rolls around and the mountaintop is in the rear view mirror because we're just like squishy toys reverting back to our former shape. And that's the point I think John is making in John chapter 21. That Jesus is the master gardener as Adam reminded us back in chapter 15. He's the one who's going to prune his people so that we could bear much fruit. He's the good shepherd who's going to lead us because he knows that we are just going to revert back to let the squishy off of Sunday, the pressure off, and we're just going to revert back. And so John says, it's not the end of the story. Jesus is still at work in your lives to help you not revert back to the old ways, to the old stories. And so, the first thing that he does is he meets them in their fishing expedition by making it futile. Verse 3 tells us that after that night they caught nothing. That had to be like a little bit of a letdown if the resurrection had really happened and they really had the power of God at work in them and Jesus really was victorious. It had to feel a little bit of a letdown to go back to work and find that it was a completely futile effort, that they had caught nothing. Night was the normal time that fishermen caught fish in that day and they fished all night long and they caught nothing. And I think the failure is designed by Jesus for them to feel how futile life is apart from him. Verse 5, children, do you have any fish? No. Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And they have a catch that is so big they can't even haul it in. Now, it's possible they spent the all night just fishing on the left side of the boat because they're really poor fishermen and they didn't think there might be fish on the other side. Let's go look. There is probably improbable. Fishermen tend to keep looking until they find fish. Jesus is just reinforcing to them what he had said in chapter 15. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this effort futile because what I've told you is apart from me, you can do nothing. Even the place where you've built your entire life, where you feel most competent and most successful. James and John had a successful fishing business. And he, he frustrates them where they 
feel most competent and most successful to reinforce this truth. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Everything you've built your life on, the place where you feel most accomplished, apart from me, you can do nothing but abide in my words and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. You can't do anything apart from me. Follow my instructions, though, as you go out into this world, and you will find that life just works better for you. Cast the net over on the right side, and John says, the net was so full, there was 153 fish, and it was so big that he's surprised that the net's not torn. And I love what happens next, because this is the next thing that Jesus does. He, he meets them in everyday life to prove to them, you can't do anything apart from me. And then he meets them, in their, meets Peter in his failures. It's a little bit weird, verse 7. Peter, we're told, got dressed and jumped into the sea. He was stripped for work. He sees Jesus, and he puts his clothes back on and then throws himself into the sea. You've got to wonder why. And all throughout John's gospel, there's been this really funny interaction between John telling Peter's story. Peter is an impetuous guy. He's bold, he's outspoken. Peter's one of those guys who, who acts first and thinks second. And he throws himself into, he gets dressed and he's so excited to see Jesus, he throws himself into the sea. And, but then when he gets to shore, he finds Jesus there. And he'd prepared a breakfast for him around a charcoal fire. You'll remember that Peter and his bold, impetuous Peter had failed greatly Jesus on the night of his trial. Jesus had denied Jesus three times. He'd promised Jesus, I'll, I'll never deny you. I will never betray you. And a little servant girl comes up and says, do you belong to Jesus? He's like, no, I don't even know the guy. Who, who are you talking about? Three times he caves again and again and again. And that little servant girl asked Peter that question when he was around a charcoal fire. It's the only other time that John mentions a charcoal fire in his gospel. It's meant Jesus has just set it up there. It's meant to trigger his memory of his failure in a really vivid way. You've had this experience where you smell something or you, or you see something and it's like you're reliving the moment as if it's just happening again and, and he's triggered. And you can imagine what this would have felt like for Peter, the scent of the fire, the sound of the crackling, the shame of his failure coming rushing back, flooding his memory as vivid as the day he failed. And you see what Jesus is doing. He isn't going to just ignore Peter's failure. He's going to bring it out in vivid ways because that kind of failure is way too much for his beloved Peter to carry around in his heart. Surely you've had 
a time when you've had a conflict with a friend, it blew up. Like you are so in the wrong that it is one of your most embarrassing moments. A cloud of shame just hangs over the relationship and you've gotten back together with them and all you can be thinking in the back of your mind is, what do they think of me? And then your friend says nothing. And it just hangs over the relationship. Every interaction is just haunted by that question, what are they thinking of me? The elephant in the room is literally eating you alive from the inside out. And Jesus cares too much about Peter to let him live. And that kind of shame hanging over. He had lost, he had failed the Lord. He'd lost his place of prominence. He had abandoned the Lord in his time of trial. Could that mean that he could be of no use to Jesus' mission anymore? What does Jesus think of me? And so the question comes again. I said last week that the questions of the Lord often are meant to throw us off of our equilibrium. They they cause us to stop and think when, when the Lord asks questions of us. And so he asks questions of Peter again. Simon, son of John. He asks him his personal, most personal name. Jesus had given him the nickname Peter. He had renamed him, but Simon was his birth name. It's Simon, son of John. Do you love me more than these? More than these. Peter was a lover of people's opinions. He was captive to people's approval. It was the thing that caused him to fail the Lord and sin against him. His love of other people's approval and opinion. You see what Jesus is doing is he's putting his finger on that core idol. The deepest affection of Peter's heart. The cause of his great failure. Do you love me more than these? And you see what Jesus is doing. He's not doing this to condemn Peter. He's doing this to heal and to redeem so that Peter could experience Jesus' love in the deepest part of his heart. He's going after his deepest failure. He's going to help Peter live the story so profoundly by bringing it out. This is the pathway of return. These type of interactions are the pathway of restoration. That when Jesus confronts us and exposes the deep crevices of our hearts, our greatest failures, it is not to condemn, but to redeem Peter. He restores him. Peter three times. Peter failed. Three times Jesus restores him. He leaves no stone of his shame uncovered but uncovers it so that he could cover his shame with his love do you love me more than these yes lord you know i do feed my sheep do you love me peter yes lord you know i do peter there was a third time you failed me do you love me yes lord you know that i loved you and it grieved him when he asked him the third time then feed my lambs every time peter I'm going to cover you. I'm going to expose. I'm going to cover. I'm going to restore you back to the mission. And that's what the cross does. It always guarantees that there's always a pathway of restoration and embrace. Always, always in Jesus, a pathway of restoration and embrace. 
There's no one who is exempt from that pathway. You can't out-sin your way out of Christ's love and embrace. No failure is so great that the love of Jesus can't cover your shame. But he is going to expose that failure so that you would know the depths of his love for you. If he leaves it uncovered, then you won't believe that it really applies to that area of your life. We've all been there. We've all done that. We've all wondered. He, I know he loves me, but I don't know if he loves this part of me. He loves Lord, you know me. Those are haunting words. Unless you know the sufficiency of the cross-shedding blood of Jesus' love. Jesus knows us at our worst, loves us deeply, and he wants to apply the balm of his love to our worst failures. It's easy, or it's easy, maybe not easy, it's simple to live in that kind of comfort and just stay there. I mean, once it gets there, restored, forgiven, engaged our worst, and loved there, and just sort of bask in the love that God has for me in Christ Jesus, oh, it's so wonderful. But Jesus is like, look, Peter, I'm restoring you, and I'm sending you on mission. Don't just stay here. It's a restoration to involvement in Jesus' mission. Peter's first restoration is threefold again. You, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Jesus is putting Peter back in his grace, and then he's putting Peter back into his mission You can't fail Jesus so greatly that you are of no use to him. In fact, maybe it's say it this way, only those with great failures are of any use to Jesus. Because only then do you know what kind of transformative love you have in Christ so you can take it to others and see their lives transformed. If you think Jesus only captures those who are sanitary, then you won't go to those who really need him. Only great failures are of any use to Jesus. But those who are great failures and have been embraced by his love are then sent on his mission. And notice there's no space between Peter's restoration and the reinstatement of Jesus' mission. You failed me? Get back on. Go after this mission. It's meant to comfort us. The gospel's meant to comfort and empower and the squishy toy takes, begins to take the shape of Jesus. Because notice that immediately after he restores him and he has this, inter- this threefold interaction, he immediately then in verse 15, 18 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, now throughout John's gospel, this is Jesus' way of getting attention, grabbing him by the head and says, Listen up, I'm fixing to tell you something that's really important. Truly, Truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, when you're mature, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. John's gospel started with the same words to Nathaniel, follow me. It ends with these words, follow me. But to Peter in this context, it's got double meaning. He 
Peter actually goes for a walk after this with Jesus, and John is following right behind. They are restored. They are back into fellowship with each other. They had had a meal together, but the meaning, follow me, goes so much deeper for Peter. Follow me on the path of true life. When you were old, when you were young, you used to dress yourself. When you are old, when you grow up and mature, here's what's going to happen. You're going to stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. The resurrection of Jesus is the place of all power and authority that is meant to enable us to follow him in a life of ministry that takes the shape of our Savior in his death. He's telling Peter, Peter was crucified around mid-60s, crucified himself upside down. So tradition tells us. And and Jesus is forecasting this. He's prophesying. This is what's going to happen, Peter. You're going to stretch out your hands and and you're going to be taken by force. You're going to go where people you don't want to go. That should be the shape of your life. I'm restoring you back so that you can live a life that begins to look like my life. Cross-shaped, cruciform. You aren't going to believe the story. It's not going to take root in your heart unless you're engaged with the mission of Jesus. And when you're engaged with the mission of Jesus, that life is going to start to look like Jesus. In the shape of the cross, I often say that preachers let God's people off the hook too easily. And the application just comes, read your Bible more, go to more small groups, give more money away, be kinder to, to people. But the call of Jesus' mission is deeper than that. It takes the form of the cross. Follow me. And if it's going to take the form of the cross, it's going to require the power of the cross. You can't lift this out on your own strength. Left to ourselves, we are at least I am, immensely selfish. What can I do to make my life more comfortable? But see, with the gospel, what Jesus says in the gospel is, what must I do to make your life more comfortable? The world may say to us, be kind to one another, but Jesus says, make sure your enemies flourish. For then they will, you will be sons of God who proved his love for us while we were yet his enemies. Christ died for us. It's not that we should give more money away. It's that our giving should feel like death. So we don't give what's left over, but we give what's precious to us. We give by giving up. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though there he is rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by your poverty he might become rich. He says that's the shape of giving. It's painful because the cross isn't easy. It's painful. It requires, it's going to feel like death to follow Jesus so that the shape of God's people as we live out in the world 
People should say, man, their lives look radically different. They have flipped the world upside down. How can they live that way? Because Jesus is raised from the dead, who was crucified for our sins and raised to victory and is now ruling in our hearts as we just sung. And where he's ruling, death is possible. And so that Jesus says, this is what it looks like. You know those people who are slandering you at work and your friends who are gossiping about you around the community? Here's what it looks like to flip that on its head, to look like the cross in their lives. Praise them, eulogize them, sing their praises out into the community, outdo one another in showing honor. Follow me to the cross. But remember this, the path doesn't end with death. Follow me. It may feel like you're dying. Follow me all the way, because the one who's saying this is on the other side, raised from the dead, reigning never to die again with all power and authority, all of the riches of God's kingdom, all of the blessings and honor that belong to him. He went through, follow me, lose your life for my sake, and you'll find it, he says. I'll boast in my weakness, Paul says, because then your power will be unleashed. Follow me, because the resurrection is proof that you won't miss out on anything, anything by following Jesus in a life that looks like the cross because on the other side of the cross is a life that bears the resurrection power of Jesus who is at work in his people. See, what the resurrection proves is that real life is found on the other side of dying to ourselves, of losing ourselves. That's the way Jesus flips this upside down. And so if you find yourself the squishy of Sunday, the squeeze of Sunday is just causing you to revert back, then squeeze yourself into a life that feels like death. Because then when the squeeze is off on mission for Jesus, you begin to realize I'm believing the story more than ever before because it's necessary for me all day long. And so we end John's gospel. It's a little bit sad for me to come to an end. I have benefited richly. I think God has blessed our church richly during this time. May he continue to do so as we follow him. Let's pray. Lord, you've said... Greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for our friends, and such we are. We're friends of God. And so I pray, Jesus, our master gardener, tend our hearts. Help us to believe the story more richly and more deeply than, than ever before so that we can live in light of it and bring glory to your name. We need you to keep squeezing us, please. We pray this in your name. Amen.